0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. We've got an in studio episode today with Tony Uphoff, the CEO of Thomas, who's here for another episode of Uphoff on Industry. And Tony's been with us for several months. He's bringing some really good insights, what he and his company with their ThomasNet site and uh, Data services are looking into what's happening in the digital industrial world, how that's changing, morphing, and driving some remarkable innovation across industry. So, Tony, thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Bob. Great, uh, great to see you and uh, welcome, everybody. You are in, in Thomas headquarters as we speak in uh, our uh, modest studio here. This building, uh, the company moved into in 1923. 121 year old company and we've been in this building basically since 1923 and Talk about technology and innovation. The founder of the company moved into this building because it was the only building in New York City That had steel reinforced floors uh-huh. and he wanted to be able to control his own printing and printers back then <laughs> were weighed two tons and so he moved into this building <laughs> and Theoretically we've been there ever since so welcome. It's Thank you. you.
0: Well, it's remarkable that a century and to think back when you know, the challenges that businesses have today as they think about stuff, one of the things they don't have to think about is I got to have my own printing press here. Right. I have to have my own electrical generation plant.
1: Yeah.
0: But at the time, that was probably quite cutting edge.
1: It, it wasn't uh, uncommon. And literally, the company history dates back to during uh, the World War. Um, the, on behalf of uh, major suppliers, they lobbied the government to get more paper for Thomas because it slowed down the industrial economy because buyers didn't get their directories. To be able to make informed purchases from so it, it's really i can go on and on but the history of the company is really remarkable and still family-owned company no outside investors really kind of a remarkable uh, an american business story really
0: it is isn't tony just take us another step in that direction too because what had initially been a, a classic media company now you and uh, the other members of the management team here have pushed it forward into a new era of data, data services, and insights.
1: We've been the leading resource for industrial product and supplier um, sourcing since the inception. And obviously that was print for many, many years. And Thomas was one of the first companies that went online with early websites and they experimented with CD-ROM delivery before that. And then over time, what the company realized is not only was it really an online and a technology company, but the amount of data we were starting to capture, primarily to help Buyers find exactly what they were looking for and to help suppliers find the right kind of buyers for their products and services but the data itself becomes it has become so incredibly valuable that over time the company started to evolve into really a data and platform company so from a, a, a print directory to a website to now really a data and platform company and as a result it, when you walk around the halls of this company you're just as likely to bump into a software developer uh-huh. As you would be somebody that's a, a data scientist, as you would be somebody who you know is, is producing some sort of actionable content for the, in, the industrial market. And what's really fun for us is all that data now being able to access it through some of the tools. Right. You know massive cloud computing infrastructure and different things that frankly we could never afford on our own. Yeah. But we can now through AWS and other cloud providers that we work with, have access to a crazy amount of data. It in turn becomes a, you know, almost like a window into the industrial economy. Yeah. So it has clearly enabled a, a remarkable amount of change and evolution for a company like ours and then are being able to share that in value uh, to our customers.
0: Yeah. Well, Tony, if I could add one quick uh, add on to your story there about the, the building and the steel reinforced floors to support the, the giant printing machines or printing presses, I guess. Yes. So 20 blocks south of here, uh, Google's first New York headquarters, right, was an yeah. old uh, bus garage for the, the Port Authority. So this massive building and you know, these sloping floors, It had to be built strong enough to, uh, to, you know, to hold buses going up and down through there. And I think sometimes we tend to forget how quickly things change and flip around. And uh, I know there was another one in Philadelphia, 100 miles south of here, there was uh big heavy reinforced building in Philadelphia, where during the war they made tanks. So they had to be able to move, roll tanks up and down out of this building yeah. and it became uh, a
1: data center yeah. co-location business. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there's a, there's a cliche you have heard many times, Bob, where they talk about, you know we tend to overestimate how quickly a technology is gonna, gonna you know, impact us. Um, But then we tend to underestimate over time the actual impact of the technology. So we say, well, it's going to be the year of, you know, whatever the new advanced technology is. And it takes several years for it to play out. But then once it plays out, the impact is far more profound than we ever could have possibly imagined. And it's funny, in the meeting I was in before this one, we were talking about infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody in the meeting started to to talk about infrastructure in the early days of the web to infrastructure today. And if you were to do what we're doing now, you know, we're we're in terabytes of buyer behavior data. We are, you know, we've got artificial intelligence applications and tools, we've got all kinds of things. If, if some of that technology technology had been available in Web 1.0, the amount of cost it would have taken to own the computers and the colos and the storage facilities and all those things would have been cost prohibitive. And and it's really remarkable of uh, and, and it's one of the things I'm excited to talk about with you today is is what what is what are some of these technological advantages starting to enable Mm -hmm. and can we start to think about where that might go right and i think that's to me i just see the impact it's had on a business like ours and and you know we can we can punch up way up in weight class today, you know through these enabling technologies and it's allowing us to think differently about our business we don't Mm -hmm. you know we certainly have limits like any company but we don't we don't limit our ideas based on traditional metrics of size anymore because those things have been they're not irrelevant they are certainly still relevant but the ability to access increments of technology and and resources today is so much more cost effective and so much more available that i think over a period of time it's in a positive way uh, causing us to think differently about our business, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? We, we think of our business in a different way because of the enabling technologies.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Tony. So one last thought on that. The um, We've got uh, an issue of our newsletter coming out in a couple of days here. And the, the fundamental idea of it is if, as you're just describing with your company and a lot of the companies that you deal with and that you help aggregate the data and share it with them and analyze it and interpret it, these industrial companies. If it's true that you know every company is now a software company, then what happens to yeah. the software companies? Yeah. What what do they become? So yeah. these evolutionary cycles are hitting not just the non-tech companies, but back to the tech companies. And what is it that you know a company like Thomas is going to need in its next wave of evolution that you'll be looking to the outside to deliver? Because more and more you're going to be able to make a lot of the. You know, a lot of the types of things
1: you need inside. Um, going back probably two years ago now, Bob, one of the things that we wanted to do primarily for a cultural you know, process, if you will, was to help people inside of our company. We've got roughly 300 employees that help build everything we do and serve Kind of one of three constituencies. Either we serve what we call a user customer. So these would be buyers that use our platform every day to inform themselves about product sourcing and supplier selection or evaluation. It could be engineers, procurement professionals, what's called MROs in factories and things like that. Um, and then we have an advertising customer. They would be product providers or suppliers, right? And then the third is partners of ours that help us with our business. Hmm. And we took all 300 employees of the company through a customer success workshop where they had to identify which of those customers that they focus on and then any potential barriers or friction areas in serving that customer. And I'll tell you what was remarkable about it, Bob, and I didn't see this coming, was a lot of people who had been here a while didn't realize that we weren't leveraging in our own internal business systems. We did on behalf of customers, but we weren't leveraging our own internal business systems in a way that best served our customers and our business. And it was really remarkable. Simple example. We were still using on-premise financial software that that was so dated and cumbersome and difficult, an order entry system that was dated and... As we identified that, it was remarkable how many people kind of got the point of irony of cobbler's children. Yeah. They we're yeah. doing these fantastic <laughs> things for our customers. Why don't we start to use this technology? Uh-huh. And, and I use it as a small vignette about how culturally it really helps so many people in our company kind of step back and go, I need to think about the business differently. Because yeah. they hadn't thought of the enabling technology in what they did in Billing. Or, you know processing a customer order. They didn't think about tech that way They thought about tech on behalf of the user or tech on behalf of the advertiser and I know this seems like a small thing It is really changing the way people think some of the best ideas We have right now are coming out of functions of the business that you wouldn't think have anything to do with tech or anything to do with Product, but they're identifying a business process that we can make better or take the friction out or improve the accuracy of Because they now understand the technologies that are available to us are much more powerful and flexible
0: than they ever really been. Yeah, it's a it's a great parallel to some of the things that are going on with, uh, you know, not just in a company like yours, from media to platform to data and services like that. The companies you cover, the partners you deal with, everybody's internal value uh, value capabilities are changing because the outside world's changing so fast too. And that's one of the things I think sometimes people, some companies feel. See that it's not a steady state that they operate in. As they change, they by necessity change who they buy from, who they sell to, who they work with, who they partner with. As those countries are changing, to it comes back in. So there's need for uh, whether it's an industrial company, a financial services company, healthcare, whatever, to to be able to be in some ways like masters uh, of their own destiny and be able to control some of that. As you've said, it affects not just what you sell, what you make, but how you think about who we who your company is and where it can go into the future. So um, I know you've got some great things to talk about today. What What's top of mind for you? Well,
1: you know, perhaps as a segue, I pick up on a couple of things you just said, Bob. I think one is um, you have often used the phrase of um, what business are you in? And, and I think to a certain extent, you and I are starting to touch on that, right? And you used yeah. to use that as a, as a way of illuminating from a very powerful point of view of hey, technology is, is either creating new competitors or it's creating new market opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it oftentimes, um, hopefully in a positive way, forces you to stop and say, hey, what business am I really in today? You know, the old example, am I in the train business or the you know, the transportation industry or something? That's happening in every industry under the sun today. And I think that's a really fascinating dynamic. Second, I think it's redefining some industries. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I think the other thing is, the pace of change. And I think what is really hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around is when you get the, I don't argue the twin pillars of technology and globalization, but when you get that in relative orbit, the velocity and pace of change speeds up exponentially. And I think that's a very, um, it's a very challenging, bit of a cliche, you hear this all over the place, but when you get into the, the guts of a business today, how fast things are changing and how fast things are moving um, and whether that's new competitors or new market opportunities, I tend to think of the new market opportunities more than, you know, uh, fear-based competitive yeah. dynamics, because I think that's a more powerful way to look at it. But it is, it is amazing. I think what, in many cases, it's it's forcing companies like ours to actually make sure that we're rigorously prioritizing, because it's almost like, I don't want to say you could do anything, but there's so many opportunities. You want to make sure that you're prioritizing in a way that makes sense,
0: you know, and be happier
1: business. Well, there's. <clears throat> I think it's
0: funny, Tony, as you described that there's a similar context. I, I'm always puzzled when people say, "Oh, yeah, well, but th- that's only true in B to C or some makes." Like this, say, like, "Oh, okay, so you know, uh, the, the fuddy duddies or whatever in the B to B world, you know, they won't be faced with this." And I think it's sort of happening just as fast coming the other direction as those sort of temporary. But I don't think they're so relevant anymore. These constructs of you're B to B and I'm B to C and somebody else's. Somewhere in between. I think those things are coming down because people want to know, as you were describing earlier, how they buy, where they buy. They want to have a direct relationship, whether there's some intermediaries there at some point. And there's a parallel one that you and I have chatted about before, which is inside a company this notion of a front office and a back office, right? The stuff that was relegated to the back office in in calmer, quieter, slower paced days, has to come to the forefront. Now, I as ask people, so like HR, HR is a backup of this thing, but what about the war for talent? Yeah, and you know what you were describing with the financial systems you have—they were built for a different time and a different set of needs—and you know uh, it will touch your customers, right? How fast you're able to deal with your own internal financials—it yeah.
1: it absolutely affects that. I also think you know it's fascinating. One of the things in our market that we're we're um, we see all the time, and we watch it in our data, and, and we can see the impact of it. Is um, Technology is starting to revolutionize the way supply chains work,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And, and historically, if you go back through history, if you control the supply chain, right, you kind of control the industry. Yeah. Right? So if you think of retail as yeah. a good example of that, you go down through various you know, parts of the business. And the biggest challenge you had as a new entrant is you couldn't tap into the supply chain. so. He, who owned the supply chain, could dominate or win a market. Well, the cost of entry into a supply chain is so much less expensive today, but it's also becoming increasingly decentralized. So as a simple example, we have examples of companies that are using ThomasNet and they're stepping into markets that they've never played in. And they're sourcing packaging companies, fulfillment companies, and 3 PL. Uh-huh. Right, logistics uh-huh. companies, and they're going from very small companies to very large companies in a relatively short period of time. So the days of well, I can't get into retail, or I can't get into uh-huh. this distribution channel, or I can't get into that supply chain. Some of that still exists, you know, as yeah. you well know. But I think those barriers are starting to break down a little bit, and and I think it creates a, really a, a remarkable series of opportunities. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, and we're certainly seeing it in the industrial markets. We may start to see over time a new level of entrepreneurialism where I'm not saying it's easy to start a company, but I think the barriers of entry around being able to source, which has always been the tough thing, and then tap into a supply chain, I think those barriers are coming down. I wouldn't say they're completely down, but I think it's easier today than it's been in the past.
0: And you take that and combine some of the new technologies that maybe a startup is perhaps in some cases. More, uh, more readily able to weave into what it's doing yeah. more quickly like that, that are really making a difference. So there, there's, I, I sure agree with you though, and it's, it's an opportunity-driven
1: market right now, yeah. not
0: one of fear, yeah. you know, barriers to entry.
1: So, so one of the things that we've been looking at, and, and I was looking forward to chatting with you a little bit about it. So if you, if you think of this idea of where we are in, in technology, and we tend to be myopically focused on the industrial and manufacturing marketplaces, is we're spending a lot of time thinking through based on the data of you know the, the old Wayne Gretzky line is where's is the puck going and, and what do we see what I wouldn't call predictions but what, what sort of um, ideas can we you know kind uh, of imagine about where some of the parts of the market are can go and we've been spending a fair amount of time looking at the role and the function and the impact of engineering. And if, you, if you're look in the markets that we operate in, they use the term industry 4.0, which we've talked about before on on cloud Wars Live, is fundamentally, depending on whose you know description you want to use, it is the, the fusion or convergence, if you will, of these remarkable technologies, mobile, cloud computing, uh, digital technology, sensor-based technology, and then that convergence with traditional uh, industrial products mm-hmm. and services. So, The examples of the average jet engine sending so much data back to the manufacturer of the engine as opposed to the pilot is a great example and creates maintenance and all kinds of fantastic things. We have a big customer of ours that, believe it or not, makes screws that go into um, absolutely cannot fail environments. They have sensors in the screws so they can actually communicate back and forth. So we're starting to see this take off. So we're starting to spend some time about, okay, so based on that, where where might we see some really interesting innovations in engineering? And we've been looking at things like aerospace engineering. Mm -hmm. You know, we're now going to open up the ability, as crazy as it sounds, to maybe do things on other planets and connect into things happening outside, you know, the atmosphere of this earth, and then controlling that engineering from here and, and reaping the benefit of it.
0: Yeah, Tony, I, as you were describing that, I was thinking about um, you know what happens when you sort of slip these earthly bonds. And um, there was uh, oh, 15, 20 years or so ago, I was doing something at, at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, the head of their computer science department was talking about, um, how did he put it? I think he described it as he said, yes, he said, in, in the not too distant future, we'll be able to do remote plumbing in your home, and yeah. you won't be bound by yeah. the ability of a plumber to get into your home when you're there. And somebody said, no. I said, that, that'll never happen. He said, it's just too complicated. And he said, I believe we just sent a, a rover lander to the moon. He said, if we could send some moon, we said, we can fix your plumbing remotely. So it's, it's really just like getting past a little Absolutely. bit this, this sense of constraints yeah. that we have. And your point earlier about the opportunity-driven markets.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been looking at areas where um, there's big need. Mm-hmm. So you start to think about things like agricultural engineering and not historically a space that you know I spend a lot of time in and, and likely you spend a lot of time in, but you look at this and I think this stat is now there's gonna be close to 10 billion people on the earth by the year 2050. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a long time away, it's actually not. And so what a lot of these technologies are starting to enable is the way for us to look at growing food in different ways, to growing food in different environments, to creating a completely different way that we think about agriculture, as opposed to having the physical limits that in many cases we still have today certain regions of the country or certain environments can only do certain things from a um, a food supplier or a food sourcing mm-hmm. point of view so we we are just fascinated in trying to understand you know where might some of these technologies aid in that we're also spending a lot of time looking at the medical device industry mm-hmm. and the same thing is happening there is these advances in technology are allowing the medical device companies to start to think about applications they couldn't even possibly imagine yeah. before, and, and I think it's going to unleash a whole series of medical diagnostics and um, uh, medical treatments that we can see hints of this. But I think there's going to be a massive acceleration in innovation in those areas in the
0: near future. And that, Tony, um, uh, just two related thoughts on that. I saw this morning that uh, both of these companies are based in Europe, but one is a flavors and fragrances manufacturer, and the other is a food they make food processing equipment they've just formed it's not a joint venture but it's a it's a pretty sweeping alliance they want to work together more closely in ways that will allow startups to provide tools and services and insights to startups who want to get into this business so exactly your point about supply chains Uh, these things happening more quickly. We're seeing inside the tech industry some unprecedented alliances of some of the big tech vendors, you know, Oracle and Microsoft, Microsoft and SAP, now Microsoft and ServiceNow, You just have never seen before. So I think these new Mm -hmm. external realities are forcing some changes inside across companies that might not have seen those capabilities before.
1: Do you you think, and you touched on this before, You know, as we spend time thinking about these engineering disciplines and software engineering is one of the disciplines we look at that arguably could get redefined as we watch how these technologies play out. Um, what does that software company of the future look like? I'm intrigued with your, the yeah. point you made earlier is, you know, if, if and we'd be a very small example of this, but if, if over a period of time, unless they a generation. In a decade, this company becomes much more of a tech platform, a data platform company mm-hmm. that says something about the, the marketplace and how people can adopt similar technologies and, and deploy them. What does it say about software? Does it suggest that software is going to get more deeply vertical in nature or, or software becomes an enabling platform that various types of industries use? Yeah,
0: I think it'll definitely be both of those, Tony. In some ways, I think one of the small examples of it that we're seeing is it's uh, the Oracle Autonomous Database. And it is a uh, database, as you know, are among the most complex and challenging pieces of software of any kind in the world. And Oracle has been able to create a version of it that now runs almost entirely independently. It doesn't need to have you know, babysitters monitoring yeah. it, patching it. And unfortunately, a lot of companies today have not always been as rigorous as they need to be about installing patches and so on like that, and updates, which create security vulnerabilities. Well, if this new type of software is able to do that automatically, you remove some of that possibility of human error out of it. It constantly improves and fixes itself, improves itself as it gets better. So I think what we'll see in the future some is that uh, the software is going to talk the software a lot more without human intervention, make it more intelligent. So in the supply chain area, I, I, do you need somebody to type in the software knows this shelf is about to be empty and that supplier has some yeah. things ready? Yeah, just make more and more of those connections. We're starting to see some of the yeah. examples
1: of that So some of the suppliers that we work with have, have created, you know, uh, let me call it automated or intelligent systems so that as um, somebody would uh, draw down inside a related factory that acquires, you know, uh, products or services from that as it run, as it automatically replenishes and, and you know, auto uh, triggers an order and things like that. I was with a company, again, a um, small company that that literally five people in the company, it's a startup uh, uh-huh. operation, fascinating business where they have a, an automated device that in the oil and gas industry, you have to burn off excess uh, gas and you do it by a flame uh-huh. and it has to be you know, regulated, you have to do this very carefully. They've actually created a device where they can do this and they can monitor it from afar. And they sell basically it's a box yeah. that, that does this and they can monitor all the dynamics of this thing and they can do this from a distance. I mean, it's amazing to me. Seems like a simple application. That's a huge challenge if you're in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. And it's regulated by the state, yeah. and you gotta monitor you gotta be very careful how you do with it. I think you're gonna just see just tons of those examples and they built enough intelligence into the system and then it can communicate back to you know via software and, and internet based technology can mm-hmm. communicate back to a central location. Um, but I think that idea of the, the smarter and smarter systems, whether that's taking the application you know in proximity and or replenishing um, I, I also think there's so much data now from use yeah. that you know uh, I, I I would like to see software companies actually being able to come back and analyze our use of particular types of software to improve our company, to help us become more um, proficient or efficient. But also, I would imagine, just like we monitor the data of every two seconds, somebody using our platform, we use that to constantly improve the platform. Right, right. Yeah, I think
0: there's a lot of work being done in that area. So they don't, uh, you know, the new SaaS programs and cloud software, you don't want a lot of customization but you want more configuration yeah. of these hundred available things we noticed that Thomas only uses 82 of them so let's turn off these other 18 or and what within those 82 needs to be improved or enhanced And Tony I wanted to mention too you talked about you know your exploratory uh, steps into medical devices I uh, was talking with some people the other day uh, at the University of Pittsburgh which has a pretty big uh, medical school there. And they said their faculty now is, I think it's approaching, is it a third, maybe it's even closer to 40% of the faculty are from bioengineering fields. Interesting. So not the traditional medicine. And so, uh, because I remember I saw the names of a couple of the the people who were speaking at this event and they were on the medical school faculty, but they were resident within the the engineering schools. I thought, boy, this is, I said, no, it's becoming quite a trend and more and more that's the direction those things are taking. A new uh, blending of expertise, new outcomes that can happen in that, and I think then it's like we've been talking about here that the way that that triggers a series of changes, in everything that happens, what's possible, how it's measured, how it's used, yeah. how it's monitored.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you
0: know there's a there's a related
1: topic that I wanted to tee up a little bit too, in addition to the you know how is this. Are these technologies redefining, certainly in the industrial and manufacturing markets, the businesses that some of these companies are in? It's mm-hmm. fascinating to watch some of our mm-hmm. customers start to completely rethink yeah. you know, what they could provide, what they could offer, and, and and how they work with companies. We're seeing subscription or partial ownership or shared ownership or SaaS-like models emerging from services industry. Yeah. Just, just remarkable stuff that's happening. Other thing that I think is interesting, and it made me think of it when you, you brought up the, the university, Um, 2017 was uh, the year that there was another generation in the workforce at the exact same time that was of equal size and weight as the baby Uh boom generation. So as you know, the baby boom generation, largest generation ever created, largest generation ever studied, every demographic understanding we have was lifted from a study of the baby boom generation. Well, the millennial generation is of equal size and of equal weight in the workforce, almost exactly 50-50 as of 2017 and we've been studying this as well so what we can see in our use case it's about 50-50 what we can see is you know we know to be true about that generation is they're digital natives they don't mm-hmm. remember a world without the internet mm-hmm. and they're making demands of people that are different and they're having a, an influence on companies and that doesn't mean they're pushing out the other generation right. it means they're influencing right. in a positive way older generations and and we think this is something that's kind of intriguing too and that perhaps a lot of companies haven't stopped to think about and i'm not a fan of millennials or unicorns and oh therefore you have to treat them differently i I don't buy any that's that's sold to you by researchers (laughs) who are trying to take your money Um, but i do think understanding a multi-generational workforce is an opportunity and i think if if your workforce is multi-generational by definition your customer set is too And we're spending a lot of time talking to our customers of so just being aware of that and understanding mm-hmm. of it, and it could be as simple as, you know, the millennial generation not going to put up with a crappy web experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas an older generation might call the eight hundred number. Yeah, I couldn't find what I wanted on the website, but I'm going to pick up a you know <laughs> phone and, and call these folks to figure it Yeah, and that's a sim- overly simplistic example, but I think that idea of I don't want to go so far as to say you're redefining the workforce, but I think we need to start thinking about the workforce in a bit of a different way because it is changing.
0: Yeah. And Tonya, on the other side of that, too, uh, there's the the generational uh, balance or rebalancing that you described. But also one of the things that Microsoft is doing, this new category of worker called, you know, first line workers versus one or something. But people who, you know, uh, in re- clerks in retail stores, yeah. people in some manufacturers, yeah. they've never really had a firsthand experience with technology, but now through the mobile phone, they are getting yeah. this sort of a sense. And that, again, I think that's one of those other things, too, that's driving this notion of front office backups, just blowing that, obliterating it. Everybody in every part of your company is going to have access to an opportunity to create a better experience for the customer. Yeah. And I think companies that, you know, ignore that are going to do so at their own peril. And but Tony, the other two other quick things I wanted to say about, I think a great point that you raised here of this notion of change, and it, it is forcing companies to change. Who am I? What do I do? What business am I? In? How can I continue to impart new levels of value and relevance to the companies I want to do business with, and be open to new types of ideas?
1: You know, one thing Bob, I pick up on, I. I You've done a, a fair amount of writing and 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 picking up on that idea of the, the the first line worker, yeah. Which I think is just absolutely fascinating way of thinking about, um, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, where value is added, mm-hmm. and can we te- enable uh, use enabling technologies to add value all the way through the I hate this expression, the value chain, but mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. I think of it, that way when you describe yeah. it, so that perhaps our experience with somebody. You know, the example I always give is is uh, you, I, I've never seen an industry quite like the restaurant industry, right? So you go into a restaurant, you ask if they have a table available, they say no. And you say, well, um, do you have one available at 6.30? No. Do you have one at 7? No. And you're thinking, well, why don't you just tell me when you have one available, right? So there's a great example of enabling technology that's made a really first-line worker. Yeah. Horrible experience where these poor people, you know, it's like and then you're trying to look at the computer with them and determine if they have a table. There's a good example uh-huh. of you know that can be easily solved with technology where I did not even wander in unless I know you have a, ta- a table available. Or I already know when you have tables available. Yeah. Simplistic example, but I think it's I think it's, a, I think it's a, a powerful one. The other thing I would touch on, you mentioned um the enabling technology allowing companies to look at markets and different markets, but also stay relevant. Mm-hmm. Fascinating conversation with uh, an executive with FW Web Company. At the end of the day, massive distributor, a couple of billion dollars in, in industrial like valves and pumps mm-hmm. and you know, kind of very traditional yeah. products and services. They have a bit of a consumer-facing side of their business too that you can buy through retail. Talking to one of their executives who are retiring, after a fifty-year career, uh-huh. the company's one hundred fifty years old. He's retiring after a fifty-year career. So we did an interview with him and sort of said, "Hey, what you know? What can you tell us about the, the fifty-year journey?" And, and he said, it, kind of what you said. Is he said it was an endless battle to stay relevant. And he said, through different technology uh, area eras, through different phases of the industry, through different economic cycles, is how do we stay relevant to our customers? And whether that's introducing us to a new customer or satisfying an existing customer or winning back a lapsed customer. And it really hit me when you talked about that relevancy. I think it's something for us as we, as we leverage technology, but it's also, you know, with, with all the uh, choices available to a consumer today, and a B2B consumer is, is increasingly, you know, offered a, a similar range yeah. of choices, is how do we as providers, you know, it used to be you'd lock somebody in and you'd have a moat and they didn't have much of a choice, yeah. so that's how you that's how you stay relevant. You locked them, you yeah. locked them into a contract. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Today,
1: that's uh, yeah. where modes are fleeting, to yeah. say the least. And that ability to stay relevant and current, I think, is really a, a, an important thing. And it, it, it's not always easy.
0: Now, and Tony,
1: you 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 you
0: got onto that earlier when you were talking about uh, the need for, I think, more and more companies not to look at the markets they're in as one based on fear or how do I. You know, keep the uh, potential competitors at bay and I'll I'll start shaving my prices and this and that and so forth. But one of opportunity, you I know, mean, this sort of unbridled opportunity, and where do you go for that? I, I thought I called what I wanted to say, and is, right, I don't want to give out exact numbers. I'm much older than you are, as you significantly, reg- as, as, you, as I'm
1: sure all the viewers. Yes, as,
0: as, yeah. as you always tell me too. But but uh, I, I can recall, you know, a long time ago, the first times I think about buying a car. And one of the things mm-hmm. that, you know, whether it's parents or uncles or friends you know it would say it's like oh she said you know as soon as you drive that car out of the lot you've lost 10 20 you know whatever the number was right. it's gone well now you know people say that you've got a kind of like Tesla, and it's a self-learning car and it gets better you know some people say if you handle this right way the value can go up so these these things that were just sort of you know rock solid Not really gospel, but almost like that, that that we grew up with. And that's just how the world works. Well, it doesn't work that way. I think the changes that are happening there are happening so quickly that it used to be, too, across industries. You know, this is the industry you're in. And if that industry is booming and you do a half-decent job, you'll boom. But if that industry tanks, well, you know, it's a race to the bottom. Well, what about the notion of shifting industries? What about moving, following the money where the opportunity and the market's going and innovation is headed and yeah. all that. So I think it is such an exciting time here. And I think you come around to the C-suites and some of these industrial companies, manufacturing companies, and the need for them to both continue to do what they've always done so well, just create, great stuff, execute, operate those great things. But now to say, how do I go beyond that to tie in with the aspirations and almost the expectations? of people in the 21st century where a car doesn't lose its value when you drive yeah. it off a lot. And everything yeah. around us is changing.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think to your point, I think, you know, some, some of the same, uh, if not many of the same laws of physics still apply. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I agree with you. It's, it, it's, it's a time of redefining in many cases. And I know when I talk to many of our customers, boy, the, the, the comment I hear more and more often is, um, them, them really trying to understand what the customer needs are, mm-hmm. and it seems like such an obvious thing. Well, don't we all pay attention to customer needs? But you know, if we have a customer and we appear to be satisfying their needs, they're paying the bill mm-hmm. and they're continuing to buy from us. But what we hear from a lot of our customers, I think, the reason they're so interested in data is they're looking for those early, you know, footprints yeah. that directionally might indicate a new market opportunity. Give me a real simple example of one. Um, one of the categories, we have 72,000 categories that we, wow. that we <laughs> provide on the platform for market volumes. As I mentioned before, literally every couple of seconds, somebody's about buying a product or a service. Well, some of those are around pretty heavy-duty capital equipment. And, and while they aren't huge volume, you know, it's not like a, a $50 million you know, machine is, is selling every second, but we can see movement in and around these markets. What we've started to see, which is, is absolutely fascinating, is companies that, are, that really want access to the data, because what they're actually looking for is to enable different financial models. Mm-hmm. So similar to what you were talking about, about the auto industry, and if you remember when you first heard the idea of fractional ownership of a car, you're thinking, oh, that's a stupid idea. Right. Well, now you're saying, why did I think uh, of this, right? Uh, you're seeing very similar things. You're seeing innovation around the idea of how can we provide more access to liquidity or financial instruments that would enable more companies to afford either a portion of a machine yeah. or a full machine, right? Yeah. You know, you look at it from another angle. Um, money is incredibly inexpensive. It's mm-hmm. historic lows and it has been for a sustained period of time. So if you look at you lend money and I lend money, how do I differentiate them?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's the same money. Yeah. So I guess maybe I could, provide slightly better terms than you, but some of that's regulated and frankly some of that I'm getting pretty close to the uh, to the you know the, the margin line yeah. as it is. But if I can find a way of packaging that money that enables multiple people to come in and take advantage of a piece of capital equipment or something mm-hmm. like that. So we're seeing some just, I don't think I would have imagined it in Elkander, I should have, no. but we're seeing some really, really innovative use. And there's a great example, we're a financial institution primarily based on looking for growth and they're they're serving an industrial market. And they're thinking, hey, we provide loans for capital equipment. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. You know, what's changing in that? Well, hey, maybe fractional yeah. ownership or a SaaS model or some yeah. other type of type of model where they might um, enable more companies to take yeah. advantage of something where it could have been a very finite or, or smaller marketplace.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tony, I think what, you know, you're
1: describing here about the, the shift in supply
0: chain, what well, it seems like if, the supply chains are shifting they're shifting for a reason it isn't just to make the same stuff a little bit quicker a little bit cheaper there's going to be new sorts of things that are available so there's you know the financial model that you're describing i think there's the capital equipment in a year or two or three from now is going to be extraordinarily different from yeah. what it is today yeah i think it uh what is it that the Hanover mess uh, yeah. two three months ago Microsoft had a huge presence there. It was very little about Microsoft, but most the eighty or ninety percent of their space was occupied by manufacturing companies, startups yeah. Yeah. that were involved with some of the technology or cloud-based things, from drones to AI to yeah. you know logistical optimization programs mm-hmm. like that. So that's uh, I, I think you know all those lines about you know the. The, the end of manufacturing and the end of industry and all that has really been quite silly and it's I think bred of that notion we talked about. It, we get the sense sometimes that there's that change is not universal, that right. it's in pockets where right? In fact, it's gone on everywhere. And there's always going to be a need to build stuff bigger, better, faster, more interesting, more intelligent, more customized and be and so more agile in the
1: process. you know two, two of the categories that are that have been white hot for years, are contract design, engineering design, and contract manufacturing. So these would be mm-hmm. you know folks that are coming up with concepts, right, inside companies. Some are good-sized companies, but for whatever reason they don't want to take on the infrastructure. So they'll hire a contract design firm uh-huh. to engineer all the schematics of this thing, and then a contract manufacturing company to build it for. Whereas you know you go back 20 years ago. That didn't really exist in the way that we're describing it today. Mm-hmm. It would have been much more of, boy, can we afford to build it? Yeah. Can we afford to buy the machines? Do we have the factory floor space to really get after that? We're finding just you know uh, much more agile approaches into the industry. And I know that's really a software term, but I think it's increasingly something that's going to get applied in some of these slow-moving, lumbering industries, that, or so people think. Yes that are now moving at much more agile speeds and being able to be much more flexible in tapping market opportunities.
0: Yeah, and Tony, as we're getting ready to wrap up, can I ask you, was that term, uh, do you think the agile term was born in the software industry and radiated out from there? Or did the people in the software industry look at what they're doing and say, you know what, if we're building, if we're in fact manufacturing software, are we doing it the right way to meet the modern times? We better borrow from what some." you know, car companies are doing or other yeah. manufacturing yeah. companies are doing.
1: It's a great question. And to, your, to your example, the very first time I heard the term youth was actually around the auto industry. Yeah. Some of the the stuff that, uh, you know, Drucker and others studied yeah. about those stages where particularly a, a lot of innovation happening in Japan around, you know, the, the way they automated factories and the way that they worked, and small teams and, Different things that they created. That's actually the very first wow. time I heard the term agile, and it wasn't applied to software. It was actually applied to factory and, yeah. and and uh, not just automation, but the way that te- particularly teams worked and the idea of managing the the, the, the um, team participation and engagement around you know uh, building and uh-huh. manufacturing. But now it seems like it's been uh, I don't know, uh, uh, adopted, I guess, by the software industry, certainly.
0: Well, it has, you know, the software industry is becoming so big, right? And and maybe we had talked about this before, Tony, I'm not sure, but I think it was several months ago that uh, uh, Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, which owns LinkedIn, he said, for the first time ever, they have seen in the LinkedIn statistics that non-tech companies are hiring more developers than tech companies are.
1: So the proponents, I did not know that, that is fascinating. Yeah,
0: more developers going into industry than uh, uh, other than outside of tech than into tech, so.
1: Um, you know, which we should have predicted, Bob, if you think about it, you know, now that you hear that,
0: yeah.
1: I'm kind of like, wow, that's amazing. But then I stop and go, well, wait a minute. You know, at the end of the day, and, and you and I have had a ringside seat on the impact that has yeah. had, particularly in business, for, for many years now. We've, we've been very fortunate to watch this, these dramatic transformations that it's enabled. When you look at that, at some point, you and I used to talk about this, of, you know, it, it changes the business you're in. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're a quote-unquote tech company, mm-hmm. but if you're not really, really fluent mm-hmm. in technology, and that technology is a core part of your competency, yeah. then you're going to get left behind. And that may not be true in 100% of industries today, but boy, it's increasingly true. And, and I know certainly, you know, as somebody who runs a 121-year-old company that I think has always been technically adept and yeah. innovative, but yeah. we certainly felt that it, if we don't continue to stay relevant and current in understanding how to harness and leverage technology to delight our customers, we're not going to be as relevant for the next 121
0: years right. uh, as right. we were in the previous. So, Tony, can I ask you as sort of as a last word question? You know, your response to this: if uh, business people, executives think when you hear them say, "Oh, that's that's not who we are. That's not what we do," I think that there are cases where that applies, but more and more, I think that can be a dangerous point of view to have.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's funny. I, I just, from a to try to stay relevant and fresh as a leader, I spend a lot of time, you know, learning and studying and challenging my assumptions. And one of the things that I, I've, I've returned to over the last couple of years is the study of cognitive bias mm-hmm. because it's so easy to. We all have it, right? No, we don't. I, I, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Not me. Uh, We've been successful in this particular area, and it's really hard to imagine two things. One is, could that success ever go away or be challenged, or could we apply a similar pattern into another area? And whether you look at that as greed, Mm i.e., I I could step into a new market, or fear we're going to get dismediated, Mm -hmm. the same logic is true. And, boy, we work really, really hard here, and and I'd like to think we're making some progress, but we really spend a lot of time Talking about that and challenging mm-hmm. it in a productive mm-hmm. way of, hey, you know, if, if somebody comes up with a new idea and it gets shot down really quickly, we can, you know, I find myself stopping and saying, well, yeah, let's, let's take a beat on that, right? You know, let's let's make sure that you know, is is that just our cognitive bias speaking, mm-hmm. right? The other one that we challenge a lot here is uh, sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm is, well, we have to keep doing something because we've sunk all this cost in it or historically we tried this and, you know, we sunk all the, you know we can't do it again because it costs too much or whatever. That's another one that I, I tend yeah. to look at and uh, certainly look at the brand challenge myself yeah. when I challenge other execs at the company.
0: Yeah, and uh, we hope that some of the new tools coming out today, these new types of things, will help us see these different approaches. But, uh, you know, the sunk cost thing, my I, I, brother, the uh, sort of economist guy, he says it's like, somebody who swims two-thirds of the way across the English Channel and then says, uh, I can't finish, I'm going to go back. Sure, <laughs> remember that one. I love that. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. add up. Well, brother, thank you very much for opening up your studio here at Anytime. Thomas. It's, yeah. As always, Tony, great conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Bob. Great good to good
0: see pleasure. you. Well, thanks to all of you folks out there who've tuned in with us. Uh, we hope we'll come back next time for next episode of Up Hop on Industry. And please share your feedback with me, BobEvansPA at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.